Hey church, Steve Jones here. We're broadcasting from Hummiston Park. I'm sitting on a as we kind of have a theme of food today. We also have a murder of crows is our amen chorus. So you may hear some crows cawing. That's all right. They're just joining in, praising the Lord, just like we are. So there was a rabbi who was teaching a group of young students. And he said, now students, the Jewish people have been around for 5,760 years as a people. Now, that's the longest of any people. Compare that to the Chinese, for instance, he said. They have been around for 4,670 years. And he says, what does that mean to you? What does that say to you? And uh, little David raised his hand. He said, yeah, David, what, what does that say to you? And he says, well, that means that the Jewish people have had to suffer without Chinese food for about 1,100 years. Well, it's always about the food, it seems like, and maybe not always, but today it is. The beatitude that we are studying is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, beatitude has a Latin root that means what? That's right, it means happy. It means joyful. It means abundant. We don't normally associate those terms with hunger and thirst. So what is Jesus getting at here? Well, it all depends on what you mean by hunger and thirst and righteousness and satisfied. So we're going to break it down a little bit because we definitely need and want this blessing in our lives. Let me say four things here. First of all, it might be plain old hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst, this might be plain old hunger and thirst. Now, if you use the one-year Bible as I do for your daily devotions, then on Monday you were reading in Luke chapter 6. And that's a parallel gospel to Matthew. And the reading in Luke is as follows. Blessed are you who are poor, and blessed are you who hunger. Now, you will have recognized there's a difference in the reading there. In Matthew, where we started, Jesus said, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But in Luke, the righteousness is, just, is left off. It's just, blessed are you who hunger, and also just, blessed are you who are poor. Now, is this a contradiction in Scripture? No, it is not. There are no genuine contradictions in Scripture. But it may be a difference in emphasis. Remember I mentioned in a previous message that Dallas Willard's approach to the Beatitudes is a little different. It's not that these are qualities that Jesus is commanding us to have as much as descriptions of the people in his day. And so he was basically coming to the Israelites, the people in that area, and saying, you may be poor, you may be hungry, uh, you may be mourning and sad. Uh, this does not mean that you do not have a place in the kingdom, because they had their prosperity gospel teachers back then, just like we do. People who said, hey, if you have the blessing of God and the favor of God and you're in the kingdom of God, then you're going to be happy and you're going to be materially prosperous. And if you don't have those things, you must be out of the kingdom. And Jesus is basically saying here, that is not true. Even if your circumstances are challenging, even if you are physically poor, even if you are actually hungry, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. You're out of the favor of God, or you can't be a part of the kingdom of God. Far from it. He's saying, through me, you can still be blessed and have a happy life and an abundant life, spiritually speaking. So, you know, most of us have never been starving. All of us probably have been hungry, but never certainly starving. I may be wrong about that. If I am, I'm sorry. But 
in Jesus' day, when he was teaching farmers, peasants, they lived on the edge of starvation. You think about it, all it would take would be a drought or a poor yield from the, from the crops and the harvest, an invasion from an army, and they're on starvation. So it meant a lot to them, this guarantee that you can be filled. And it means a lot to us as well. Jesus is coming to us and saying, no matter your circumstances, I still love you. And you're in my <clears throat> Now let me say this. This may be off the wall a little bit. Let me take a, a side road for just a minute. We are on the edges of food scarcity right now in our country and in the world. You know that. You may have stood in line at a grocery store. You may have seen where the shelves are empty at the Publix or the Winn-Dixie. And we're just starting to get the beginnings of that scarcity. Is it going to get worse? Nobody seems to know, but it could. Now, Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof, Tevya prays to God and he says, he says, God, I know it's no disgrace to be poor, but it's no great honor either. God doesn't want us necessarily to be poor and he doesn't want us to go hungry. And so I was thinking maybe this is a good time to resurrect the idea that they had back during World War I and World War II. They called them victory gardens, victory gardens. And during the height of World War II in 1943, Eleanor Roosevelt planted a victory garden on the White House lawn. At its height, 40% of all the fresh fruits and vegetables that were eaten in America were produced in people's backyards, in their gardens. Tons and tons of food were just being grown in people's backyards. So just an idea. Maybe a good time to plant a victory garden. I'm a city boy. I don't know anything about raising livestock or growing food. But there's a lot of information out there on the internet, and I have linked one article to our resources tab on our church website about how to grow vegetables in a five-gallon bucket, like you might get from Home Depot or from Lowe's. So there's just that. But let me move on as we continue to break this down. One idea is that Jesus might be just talking straight to those who are poor and hungry. But if not, if this is something that Jesus is commanding us to have, advising us to have for the blessed life. It may very well be a, he's saying to cultivate a spiritual hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, and the, the, the emphasis would be blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, in the physical realm, when it comes to, to food, we don't get to choose what we crave. Usually crave what we crave. Now, some of you ladies may have experienced this when you were pregnant. You may have had some cravings, and even for foods that you don't normally have an appetite for. I know when Tammy was pregnant, she craved sausage and cream cheese bagels. I mean, that was just her. And ladies, right now, why don't you go in the chat room, and if you had a craving when you were pregnant, just put it up there. What were you craving? Or, man, maybe you can do that for your wives if they don't want to share. But not so for disciples of Jesus. Jesus said, as disciples... We get to choose what we hunger for. And he says we need to cultivate a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now this means we need to explore a little bit about this, this word righteousness. What is he talking about? We're to hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is this righteousness? The word righteousness actually has a rich history. I want to go into just a little bit. 400 years before Christ, the Greek philosophers, for instance, Plato in his book, The Republic, explored the idea, what is it about the human soul that makes it live a life that is good and virtuous 
and worthy. He called that quality righteousness, and he used the Greek word dikaiosune. Dikaiosune was the word righteousness, 400 B.C. About 200 years after Plato, the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, to a version we call the Septuagint. And the word that the translators chose to translate the same idea from Hebrew of being in a right relationship with God, living a life of virtue, and being in a right relationship with other people was the same Greek word, dikaiosune, righteousness. And so, for instance, in Genesis we read where Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. That word is dikaiosune. Or um, in Amos we read that great statement, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That word righteousness, that's dikaiosune. So you have these two great traditions, the Greek philosophers and the great Old Testament prophets that converge behind this word righteousness, dikaiosune. And it reemerges in the teaching of Jesus in the first century when he is teaching about the kingdom of God. And he said, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In fact, just a little bit later in this sermon, he says, your righteousness, dikaiosune, must surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the scribes, or you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now this righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, they were meticulous in obeying the letter of the Mosaic law. How in the world is anybody going to surpass that righteousness? Well, Jesus, in his obedience to the law, seemed to have a quality that was missing in the scribes and the Pharisees, and it's the same quality that we disciples of Christ are to have in our obedience and our relationships as well. What was that quality that made it true righteousness that was pleasing to God? Now granted, this could be the imputed righteousness that happens when we are saved and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. I don't think this is that. Jesus seems to be talking about something very relational throughout this Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. So, what is it? I understand what he's saying. It's the quality of love. Agape love. Love for God and love for others. This desiring the best for other people. It's love. It's obedience motivated by love that wants to obey not just the letter of the law, but the spirit and the heart of the law. I mean, just think about some of the examples that Jesus gives in the rest of this sermon. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, don't even hate your neighbor and don't despise them. Don't, don't call them a fool. That's, that's a word that connotes that you despise that person. Why would that that be wrong? Why would that break the righteousness of God? Because that's not love. True love desires the best for the other person, so you're not going to be despising other people. Even if you don't murder them, you're to have goodwill toward them. Hey, a another example is Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, don't even look upon a woman with lust. So he's going beyond the letter of the law, the Pharisees and the scribes did that. But why would it break God's righteousness to lust after someone because of love. Love does not 
look at others and objectify them for our own fantasy and gratification. Love doesn't do that. I believe that love is the key here. Love is how Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God, and love is how we are to fulfill the law of God, and that's what he's talking about when he says, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. In Romans 13, 8, Paul writes, if you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. Jesus is the only one who ever kept the law of God perfectly. And perhaps that's because Jesus is perfect love. Our assignment is to live our lives as Jesus would, not to live Jesus' life. We can't live Jesus' life. We are to live our lives as Jesus would. Jesus living through us, in us, as us. So, how would Jesus relate to your spouse? If he was married to your spouse, how would he handle marriage? How would Jesus handle singleness, your singleness situation if you're single? How would Jesus parent your children? How would Jesus relate to your parents if he was in your family? How would Jesus do your job, your work, and relate to your boss or your employees or your fellow workers? Or if you've lost your job, how would Jesus handle that layoff? How would Jesus handle your health situation? Whatever the circumstances are, we immerse ourselves in the life of Jesus, the teachings of the letters in the New Testament, the Bible, understanding his character and especially his love. We live our lives with love and relating to God and with other people. That's the righteousness, the kaiosune of God. So the third thing I want to say is working up an appetite. How do we work up an appetite for this righteousness? How do we hunger and thirst? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. 1804, Ernest Shackleton and three companions, traveling companions, left his camp in Antarctica in search of the South Pole on four little ponies. A few weeks later, the ponies are dead. <laughs> They're on the, trying to get their way back to camp, having failed in their objective. They're starving to death, racked with dysentery. And he writes about that in a little book called The Heart of Antarctica. And he says all the way back, the only thing they wanted to talk about was food. That's all they thought about was food, gourmet food, menus. They had worked up a pretty good appetite. Now, how do we work up an appetite? Well, let me, let me suggest two or three things here. Number one is to learn how to recognize our hunger pains. Hunger pains. Now, if you're physically hungry, you, You've got signals that you recognize. Your stomach is growling and everybody in the room can hear it. Maybe you start to salivate a little bit. Uh, maybe you get hangry. You know, some people get angry because they're hungry and that's called hangry. You know the signs when you are physically hungry. Well, likewise, there may be some signs when we're spiritually hungry as well. I would suggest part of that is temptation, temptation to sin. You know, we've got a God-shaped hole that can only be filled by the Lord, and we're often tempted. Temptation is trying to take a shortcut and fill that with something else besides God. So if we are tempted to uh, steal, or if we are tempted to deceive, if we are tempted to covet, or to complain, or to be critical, to be covetous, to lust, these are hunger signs telling us, we need more of God in our lives. We actually have a spiritual hunger that can be filled with the love and the righteousness and Jesus himself, and he's the one that satisfies. There's that. Another way is to listen for the dinner bell. Listen to the, for the dinner bell. When I was growing up, when I was a kid, it was a different world back then. And 
And during the summertime with no school, our parents would send us out the door in the morning and say, come back at lunchtime. And after lunch, they'd send us out the door and say, we don't want to see you again until dinner. And we would roam the neighborhood for blocks and blocks. I mean, I'm eight, nine, or ten years old. We'd go over into the woods, a big stand of woods about a block away from my house. I guess our parents just didn't care about us back then like they do today. <laughs> Not really. Mom, I know you cared. But it's a totally different world from now. Well, the only one rule was we had to be home for dinner at 5 o'clock. And we didn't have a watch on. So my dad would step outside the door, and he could put two fingers in his mouth. Well, I can't do it, but and he could do that whistle, and you could hear it for a half a mile. And we didn't have a dinner bell, but that was the dinner whistle, and we knew it was time to come home and eat. And God's got a dinner bell. He's probably got more than one. But here's one. Suffering, difficulty, and hardship. Suffering, difficulty, and hardship. When these things come into our lives, I'm not saying God causes difficulty and suffering. I mean, sometimes maybe he does. Could be one source of suffering. Uh, our own sin and foolish choices, sometimes we live with those consequences. Could be the sin of others and their recklessness. Could be life in a fallen world. You know, this whole thing with the coronavirus, that's life in a fallen world. But regardless of what the source of it is, when we are experiencing difficulty and hardship and suffering, it's like God's ringing a dinner bell to get our attention. In Amos chapter 4, God talks about different misfortunes that have fallen upon the nation of Israel. He said, you experienced drought. You experienced disease. You experienced famine. So you experienced war. One thing after another. And after each statement, he said, and yet you did not turn to me. You did not turn to me. He says it four times in one chapter. You did not turn to me. When we experience hardship and difficulty and suffering, that is a dinner bell to turn to God. That's the time to draw closer to God. I will tell you, if I were to lose my job because of the coronavirus, or if I was to get sick from it, that's not a time for me to blame God and to distance myself from Him. That's a time for me to draw closer to God and cultivate that relationship. Or even worse, what would be worse for me is if a beloved family member lost their job or they got sick. That would be even worse still. That's not a time to turn away from God. That's the time to draw closer to God. That's like the dinner bell. God's saying, I have what you need. You need to come to me and depend upon me. Now, here's one more thing. This is the idea of cultivating this attitude, working up an appetite, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And that's to lay off the junk food. Lay off the junk food. A little bit of junk food's okay. A lot of junk food, not so much. When we raised our kids, we tried to feed them mostly healthy food, let them have a little junk food, but not too much. As a result, I remember when Stephen was in middle school, and he got to go on his first middle school youth group trip without mom and dad along. They all get, get in the van, the church van, and they get on their trip, and they stop off at the 7-Eleven. Everybody gets to go in and get something at 7-Eleven. Well, Stephen got a six-pack of Cadbury chocolate eggs. Got back in the van, ate all six of them in one sitting, and washed it down with a Mountain Dew. Sure enough, 20 minutes later, the van pulls over to the side of the road so he can throw up on the highway. Uh, too much junk food. Not a great idea. Sometimes when we are actually hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for the things of God and for the Lord, you know, we go into the candy aisle instead of heading over for the meat and the potatoes. 
Now, there are a lot of things that could fall into this category. I'm just going to mention the one right now, and that's entertainment. Little entertainment is fine. God's not a cosmic killjoy, and I'm not trying to be one I, I, like anybody else. I like to veg sometimes in front of the TV. And look, if you've got your kids at home and you're not used to that, I understand that sometimes you have to sit them down in front of the TV just to get a break from the little darlings. I feel you. I get that. However, you have to admit, our culture, our society is not just entertained. We are entertainment-driven. Driven. I know I grew up on a, a pretty steady diet of entertainment, and it's hard for me to pull away from that sometimes and go toward better things with which to feed my soul. But this is where... This is where we have to go because entertainment can be a time-sucking black hole in people's lives. And frankly, to cultivate the hunger and thirst for righteousness takes some time. Take some time in prayer. Take some time in the Word. Take some time in worship. I mean, some, some of you, let's be honest, some of you would rather give up, if you're self-quarantined at home, you'd rather give up your toilet paper than your Netflix subscription, huh? So... Let's think of it this way. Remember the story of Jacob in the Old Testament. Jacob goes to the land of his fathers to find a wife, and he sees Rachel, and it's love at first sight. Rachel. He has to work seven years to win the right to marry her. On the wedding night, after seven years of work, Rachel's father, Laban, substitutes Rachel's older sister, Leah, for Rachel in the wedding tent. <clears throat> now, this obligated Jacob to marry Leah. He married Leah and Rachel, but he did not love Leah. He loved Rachel, and Leah knew it. But he fulfilled his marriage covenant, and he fulfilled his obligations to her throughout their lives. I wonder if sometimes when we are misreading our our hunger pains, ignoring the dinner bell and filling up on spiritual junk food. If we don't make God feel like Leah instead of Rachel, I wonder if that's what he feels like. Maybe we, uh, we do the minimum requirements. We dabble in religion. Maybe we read a little, give a little, pray a little, and check that box. But the whole time, we're doing our religious duties we're wishing we could be with Rachel. I'm sure everybody watching me right now, and I myself, have no doubt that Jesus saves. We all believe that Jesus saves. Maybe we wonder sometimes if Jesus also satisfies. Until we believe that Jesus satisfies, we will never hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the irony is this. The irony is, that God is no Leah, and the things we substitute for God are no Rachel. It's God that satisfies. So, we want to work up an appetite for righteousness. <clears throat> the final thing I want to say has to do with satisfaction. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6 again, and they will be satisfied. 
In John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry again, and those who believe in me will never thirst. It's Jesus who satisfies. What is the, what's the best meal you ever had? Maybe you can't pin that down. Maybe you can think of one of the best meals you've ever had. I can tell you some of my, some of the best meals that I've ever had. Back when I was around six years old through around the age of 10, our family would travel from Jacksonville to Tampa every Thanksgiving to have Thanksgiving dinner with Grandmama and Granddaddy Jones. And my family, mom and dad, and there's three of us kids, and I'm the middle child. And then we would join them, and my aunt and my uncle and my two cousins, Tommy and Paul, uh, we would join them for Thanksgiving dinner. Those were great meals. That was over 50 years ago for me, but I still remember those meals vividly for two reasons. Number one was the food itself. Great food. For me, all the classic Thanksgiving dishes are my favorites. I love turkey. I love dressing. I love cranberry sauce. A corn on the cob, mashed potatoes and gravy, sweet potatoes, green beans, green bean casserole, all the casseroles. I like all the casseroles. Yeast rolls, of course the desserts. I'm a big pie guy, I like cherry pie, like blueberry pie, pecan pie or pecan pie. I like the whipped cream, like the ice cream. We had homemade ice cream back then. I mean, I just love the food. I would eat so much, you know, my stomach ate. I always say, why did I eat so much? But I couldn't stop. It just tasted so good, even though I was full. I would eat till my stomach ached. So was, there was that. The food was great. And Grandmama knew how to cook. But the second reason why it was, those were great meals is because the adults were all sitting at the adult table, and we kids were over on the kid table, card table that was set up. They had the good china. We had the paper plates and paper cups. But there was five of us kids that were sitting there together, and Tommy and Paul, my cousins, were older than we were. I mean, so I was six, eight, and then 10 years old. They were already teenagers when I was six. And they were like giants to me. They, they both played football. They were big guys. They could, they could heap their plates full of food. It was like an art. They'd build this tower of food on there. I couldn't believe anyone could humanly eat that much food, but they would inhale it, and that was their first helping. So they, they, they were great, but that not only were they big and they were, had, were great eaters, they were funny. They were hilarious. We would sit at the kid table and they were cracking jokes and making faces. We were all laughing. We would get so worked up, the adults would lean back and call out, now you kids need to settle down over there. Quiet down, but we were just laughing. I laughed so hard, the milk came out of my nose. My stomach was aching, not only from eating so much food, but from laughing so hard. So I still remember that, great meals. Now, if you have been thinking about one of your best meals, I don't know what you thought of, but I'll be willing to wager this. You didn't eat that meal alone. You did not eat that meal alone. You ate that meal with someone or some people that you love and who love you. You shared that meal. And we think about, Jesus says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. They're blessed, but they will be satisfied. What's so satisfying about this righteousness? Well, if, I'm, if we're right about this being love, the key to this righteousness is being love. Paul writes in Galatians, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. It's, it's love in our relationship with God and love in our relationship with other people. That's what's so satisfying. Uh, there's a saying, Hunger is the best seasoning. 
There's a lot of truth in that. Hunger is the best seasoning. But I think maybe it's the second best seasoning. Love is the best seasoning. Solomon writes in the Proverbs, better is a dish of vegetables with love than steak with strife or hatred. And so Jesus is right. Blessed, joyful, happy are those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, for following God, obeying God, relating to other people, and with God through, with love, with the love of Christ and the Holy Spirit in us, for they shall be satisfied. Bon appetit.